the two most famous, greatest pieces of uh, Greek literature would be the Iliad and the Odyssey. And in these, Homer uses the backdrop of the Trojan War as, uh, uh, for his poetic extrapolation. According to the Iliad, what, what happens, let me remind you, I know that we all had to go through this at one point or other. The educators, for some reason, determined to hoist this on us. But, but at one point, according to the Iliad, what, what happens is a Greek spends 10 years in siege of Troy without able to break in, without able to starve the inhabitants out. Now, 10 year siege is quite the siege. Can you imagine? You, you left home when your child was two, and now you're a man out there in the, uh, around the city still, and now he's 12, and he's gone through all that time without you. And the king has to finance this operation. Uh, can you imagine keep bringing the food and the supplies in for 10 years and allows the rest of his kingdom to be vulnerable as his army is tied up in siege here? Well, when Achilles, their chief warrior, dies, the, the, the warriors are all but, but lost. We're done. Well, the problem is Odysseus, the Ithacan king, does not like to lose. And so he recognizes that this frontal attack thing is getting them nowhere. So he orders this massive wooden horse to be built. There's this huge wooden horse. And when it's done, the, the, the warriors roll this thing up to the gate as a peace offering. And then in full view of the, the inhabitants of Troy, they go down the coast and get in their ships and they sail away. Well, you can imagine the, the folks in Troy. You know, we won. Oh, yeah. I mean, for 10 years, they were thinking we might be, this might be the day we're going to die. And suddenly they see the Greeks leave. They outlasted them. They knew they could do it. And so they're celebrating. So they swing open their gates and they roll this big old horse in the center of their city. And they have an incredible party. Well, at the end of the, the night, when the last Trojan goes to bed or falls unconscious, uh, suddenly a, a trap door in the bottom of the horse opens. And out comes Odysseus and a handful of his warriors. And they go to the gates and they swing them open. And there's the whole Greek army. They came back and they were just waiting there. What ten years of frontal attack could not do, one night of deception, was able to, to pull off. Now you, you wonder, if the, the folk in uh, Troy, are they just crazy? I mean, for crying out loud, your, your enemy gives you a gift. Don't you think that maybe it's toxic? You know, would they put all these resources and time and energy into trying to destroy me. Would they just quit and walk away? You know, many years ago, hell left a Trojan horse on the doorstep of the church of Pergamum. Attempted the frontal attack thing in a major way but was not going to accomplish you, you. I mean, hell's not happy with just killing all the Christians and having that be the end. The, the goal of Satan, according to Scripture, is to destroy your faith, not necessarily just take your life. And, and so that wasn't working, and so he dropped off that Trojan horse, and I would say that that very same Trojan horse from hell has been dropped off on the steps of FAC. And every other... Uh, church in America, at least, and I would venture to say probably on the, the doorstep of, of your mental uh, capacities as well. Now, if we recognize it for what it is, then that, that's the first step. But if we don't, it may lead us to the same place it led the church at Pergamum. Pergamum is now off the map. They're gone. We don't know if this is what ultimately destroyed them or not, but it, it could certainly be. 
So we want to look at this church and examine what this Trojan horse is and see if, in fact, we've bought into it. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me as we continue on in our study. Revelation chapter 2. And I trust you're bringing your Bible, please. Uh, if you don't have one, you can take one from the pew rack in front of you. It's, it's fine. No, you're not stealing from the church. It's all right. Um, Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12. And I should turn in again, just a reminder that what had hap- what's happened here is the whole book of Revelation is written to seven specific churches. They're all churches in Asia Minor. Uh, according to history, huge persecution has just started, but it's going to envelop these guys in major, major ways. Understanding some of that is very important to understanding the rest of the, the rest of the book. But uh, then, verse, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus himself writes a handful of letterettes to these seven churches because they all different nuances. And so he writes here to the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? Uh, and we can just stop for just a second even with that. Pergamum. You probably have not heard of Pergamum too many times in your life. Uh, in Asia Minor, Ephesus is the largest city. No question about that. Smyrna is, is the... Um, uh, seat of, of the imperial cult. The, 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 there's not a lot of atheists. We talked about this. Rome had their own religion, and, and Smyrna was the capital of that. But Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. It was, in fact, the official capital of Asia Minor. It's where Rome worked all of their dealings. It's where they did their taxing out of. It's where their armies were stationed out of. They did all of, all of their... East Aegean Sea campaigns from Pergamum. This was a major, major place. And again, just like all the other cities, 200,000 folk plus in the city, but like all the rest of them, they had a huge amount of, of temples to Zeus and Apollos. And just, just name a god. A key god, actually, in Pergamum was Asclepius. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with him. If you're in the medical arena, you may be, because he is the Greek god of healing. And so if you had something major going on in your body and it looked like it was chronic and it was beyond a cold, you went to Pergamum. Not was a medical town, but you didn't go there for the hospital or the doctors. You went there to the temple of Eclepius so that you could sacrifice and beg and plead to do what you needed to do to get a healing. That's what's going on in, in Pergamum. Now, also, we know, again, we mentioned it a few minutes ago, that the imperial cult is going on. At this point in history, Domitian is on the throne. Rome always had said that when their Caesars died, they became gods. Domitian said, no, I'm one now. And so he gave the, the edict that everybody had living in his kingdom, free person, had to worship him now. And so somewhere in Rome, you had to go before Roman Empire. You had to go before bust a Caesar, throw a little pinch of incense in and claim Caesar as God or Caesar as divine. They really didn't care who else you worshipped, what else you did. That's fine. But you had to do that. Actually, it was kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance. It was just you saying, I am loyal to Rome. I understand that they, they bread and butter me. They take care of my life. I, I'm, I'm loyal to them. But the Christians, of course, would struggle with it. And with the fact that Pergamum was the capital and Roman flags on every building, probably in Pergamum, it was, as a Christian, it was hard to hide and hide from the imperial cult enforcers in, in Pergamum. I think that that's why... Uh, Jesus says that these are the words of, of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. John believes in a literal Satan. He will refer to him throughout the book. But at times he refers to the Roman government as Satan as well. 
And the fact that Pergamum is the capital, that's why it would seem he says Satan has his throne there. In Smyrna, he referred to the synagogue of Satan. He recognized that the, the Jewish folk in Smyrna, who are, who are in cahoots with the Romans to wipe out the Christians, John saw behind their actions, uh, not just misplaced sincerity, not just trying to keep their own faith uh, pure, but, but demonic activity. And here he sees in uh, Rome's actions for requiring this worship of Caesar or we're going to kill you, demonic activity. John sees it for what it is. And he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Where Satan lives. Man, lots of cool stuff in here. You know, I like the, the fact that Jesus says, I know where you live. Now, it's not a threat. I know where you live. He's not, not, not doing that kind of thing. He's, he's letting us know. And this is great because, you know what? Y'all don't know what I'm going through. And I don't know what you're going through. And nobody will. You might try to tell other folk, but you know the emotions you're dealing with. You know the confusion you have sometimes. You know the temptations. Maybe you don't feel you can tell anyone about. But Jesus can say, I know. I mean, I'm not just cognizant of it. I, I truly understand. So whatever you're feeling, whatever you're facing, Jesus could, today would say, I know what you're dealing with. And specifically, I know the spiritual influences on you. You may not even know. I know. I know. And, and I know those times when you wrestle inside. Should you do this or not? And you choose to be faithful. No one else may know about this. You're going to bring your, your thoughts, you're going to discipline there, bringing them into captivity to Christ. No one else will know about this. Jesus says, I know. I know what you're facing. I know your, your victories. I know. That's, that's a good thing, isn't it? And he says, it says that you were faithful. You remained true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Antipas, Antipas was one of the leaders in the church of Pergamum. Dangerous to be a pastor at this point in the church. You be it. No, I don't want to be it. You be it. No. Well, Antipas somehow drew the short end. And Antipas, tradition says, was slow roasted in a bronze kettle uh, and died. And again, their goal was to show the rest of the Christians in the church. Are you sure you want to do this? You sure you don't want to just burn a little, a little uh, incense to Caesar? Uh, that's all they were really asking for them to do. But, but Jesus comes to these folk, folk who are still living in this church. Again, many of them more would, be, would lose their lives. But they're standing before him bandaged and bruised. And Jesus says, I know that you're faithful to me even when the knife is put to your throat. You're strong, you're faithful. And we would think that the next words would be, you know, good job. You know, I'm proud of you. Hang in there. Good deal. Something along these lines, right? But what's the next words? Chapter four, verse 14. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And you're like, say, oh, for crying out loud, cut these guys some slack, Jesus. I mean, look what they're dealing with. I mean, this is major stuff. This is like the guy that, the kid who brings home his report card, and he's got all A pluses and honors classes, and he's got that one B plus, and the parents say, what about this? What about, you know, it's like, Jesus, will you just leave these guys alone? What's the deal? But if this, this will kill you, it's only appropriate to point it out. Now, this, this, this word, nevertheless, this important word, because most of us will, will breeze by that word. 
We don't mind neverthelesses in other people's lives, of course. Matter of fact, that's what we focus on usually. But the nevertheless in our lives, ah, now, if, if, if this, all this works, and you know this is true. If, in fact, you've stood up for Christ at some point, even if it was 20 years ago, you love to tell that story, don't you? Spotlight it. Yeah, that's me, man. Stand up for Christ. Uh, and Jesus says, well done. And then Jesus says, nevertheless. But what do we hear? Well done. Yeah, well done. And then and we were facing temptation and we passed the test. And Jesus says, well done. And then he says, nevertheless. But what do we hear? Well done. Yeah, well done. That's me, man. I'm, I'm facing the temptation. And on. And whether it's, it's uh, evangelism or whether it's service. It's a name. Bible reading. We, we're well done. Yes. And Jesus wants to say nevertheless, but we don't want to hear it nevertheless. This is really what spiritual pride does. And all of us, if you're following after Christ, it doesn't take long before this kind of thing can seep into our soul. It blocks our ears. We don't hear a nevertheless. We spotlight our victories for us to see. That's first and foremost in our mind. And if other people see that, that's great too. But there are some things in the shadows that Jesus knows will kill us. Now, he's not revealing all of our sin to us. If he did that, none of us would be able to handle it. He's very patient with us, but he knows those things in our life that will destroy. And so he says, nevertheless, let me ask you, let me, this is very important. Maybe you are a teacher and you know how much study and you pour into it and you see people go, aha, that's what a teacher lives for, right? Ah, I understand. And you're just nailing it. And Jesus says, well done. You're going, well done. And Jesus says, nevertheless, and you're going, well done. Yeah. If this morning Jesus would say, nevertheless, are your ears attuned? That listen to what the Spirit says for the churches. Are your ears attuned regardless of what you're accomplishing for them and the victories that you're making and the strides you're making? Is it possible that Jesus this morning would say, nevertheless, there's some other things I want to talk to you about. That's a great question for me. That's a great question for you regularly as we open, as we open the Bible. Um, nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. And look at what these things are. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is that Trojan horse. Notice, the church was not embracing the teaching of Balaam or the teaching of the Nicolaitans, was it? No, no, it was, it was, he doesn't say that. But they were, had people under their big tent who embraced those, and that was okay. They were tolerating false doctrine. Now, these guys, really, I mean, this, this, is, this is important because our culture will tell us, right, that love equals diversity. And these guys on their, their web page would say, you know, doctrinal diversity is what we're all about. You know, they got everything going on there. And, and our, our culture would say, yes, doctrinal diversity, that your faith is like your flavor of ice cream. And who are you to say that vanilla is the best? All you can say is it's the best for you. Other people like chocolate, other people like strawberry, and that's just the way it is. So there's no best. But you and I both know that, that diversity is not always love. Your child needs heart surgery. Any doctor will not work. Well, they're all okay. No, 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 they're not okay. You don't need a podiatrist and you don't need a, a, a OBGYN. You need a heart surgeon is what you need. You're falling from an airplane. 
All things are equal. No, they're not. You don't need a spatula. You don't need a 12-carat diamond. You don't need an 85 Dodge Dart. What do you need? You need a parachute. That's what you need if you're going to survive that fall. Uh, love is knowing the right thing. And I would, I would say that our faith, people's faith, is not in that flavor of ice cream category. That's what they would push. No, no, it is, it is in the falling from an airplane category. And if folks say, all oh, religions, I'm saying, well, hang on, hang on. Nazism was based on, a th- had theological underpinnings. So, so let me ask you, a, a faith where they mercilessly murder millions of people, so that's okay? And as soon as folk will say, well, maybe they're not all equal. Okay, good. Well, now we've opened up the idea that they may not all be equal. So let's start ascertaining what is, is more equal, more, more superior than others. We can go down that road a little bit. Now, these guys in Pergamon were kind of like the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Remember uh, Ephesus. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Says, but you have this in your favor. Jesus is talking to the guys in Ephesus. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, look what he says to those guys in Pergamum, right? He says, likewise, in verse 15 of chapter 2, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, while Ephesus had doctrinal purity, but no love. And Jesus on the front end says, whoa, whoa, hang on. We might think that that's the way to go, but that will destroy you. Here, he's just going the other side of the fence. Don't swing the pendulum is what he's telling us. Don't start saying, hey, man, we're just going to embrace everybody and grace, grace, grace. And die. every diversity is wonderful. That's what we're all about. Jesus says, don't go that far. Love, love, certainly. But you better be doctrinally pure. You, what, what Pergamum was doing, this is important for us to understand what we're, we're talking about here. Because we're not talking about, well, let's fight with each other about secondary issues. You know, you know what secondary issues are, right? right? Let me tell you at least what I'm thinking about with secondary issues. We've got over here what Scripture says. Very, very important. These are primary issues. It's what Scripture says. And then all of us have how we've done church or Christianity or whatever. And sometimes, doesn't Scripture doesn't necessarily dictate how this looks, but we've gotten those two so close, sometimes they overlap a little bit. And we forget that this is important, um, but it's not Scripture. We don't, we don't want to fight about these things. There also are portions of Scripture that we ought not to fight about. And these are portions of Scripture that there are legitimate interpretations, various interpretations, foot washing, uh, women wearing head coverings to church. There are multiple of those things that we're not going to go head to head and fight each other with. Now, often what the church does, and it's very sad, I'm not saying our, our church, but it is they take these, these uh, secondary uh, basic uh, or various interpretations of scripture things and they fight about those. Or they take these how we do church issues and they fight about those. Meanwhile, the word of God, uh, whatever. As long as it doesn't impact me, I'm okay. And Pergamum was the first Liberals, really. These guys went the way of where many main lines went, have gone. The, the Trojan horse was dropped off and they began to pet it, maybe saddle it up and decide to ride it, put it in their corral, check it out. Maybe this was how we can avoid the uh, uh, persecution that was coming. Now, what we don't know is a lot about the Nicolaitans, their teaching. 
got some guesses, but nothing more than that. But the, the, the teaching of Balaam, well, we have a little bit more understanding on that. We find Balaam in, in Numbers, chapters 22 through uh, 25. Let me give you a, a Cliff Notes version here of what's going on, though. Israel just came out of Egypt, right? They clobbered Egypt in the process. Actually, God did, but they got the credit for it in many ways. Uh, they're going towards the promised land, and they've come around the uh, uh, east of the uh, Jordan River. And so they've got to go through uh, Moab's land, and the king of Moab sees these guys. And Moab knows his army is superior by far, but these guys just beat up Egypt for crying out loud. The ones that he's paying taxes to. And they, he knows these guys just beat up another king down the road. And he's thinking, man, there's just no way I can take these guys on. If I go head to head with these guys, I'm going to get killed. So what he does, knows that he has to go into a spiritual arena. He hires uh, Balaam, who's this uh, sorcerer, Gentile sorcerer. And he says, all right, let's forget the warfare stuff. We need you to curse them. Let's go spiritual on these guys. And so Balaam tries three different times. And each time God stops him. And so he, he pulls Balak, the king of Moab, aside and says, listen, listen. Frontal attack is just not going to work with these guys. Because Balaam understands something that the Israelites don't really know about themselves yet. And that's that God will honor them if they honor God. And so Balaam's saying, you know what? Just turning God against these guys, I don't have that ability. It's just not going to happen. But maybe we can turn these guys against their God. We can cause them to fall out of graces with him. And so he looks at Balak. He says, do this, Balak. Go get some of your prettiest girls. Send them among the Israeli tents. And let's see what happens. Because if the guys can get involved with the gals and start worshiping your Baal, the, the Israeli God will get very upset at them. So chapter 25, verse 1. It says, while Israel, I'm in Numbers. It says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. It's awful nice of them, right? The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now, Balaam was no idiot. He's a pretty smart guy. Hell understands how to attack us. And certainly it worked for, for Balaam here. Now, what the teaching of Balaam is, is basically this. It's an acceptance of the cultural norms that run contrary to God's glory or God's honor. It's an acceptance of the cultural norms that run contrary. Now, here's the deal to God's glory. All, all, all of culture is not evil, right? All of culture is not bad. You know, I've got an iPhone. That's a cool thing. I like it. We've got computers. That's nice. Fuel injection sure beats the tower of those old carburetor things, doesn't it? And, and uh, my boy was operated on this couple weeks, the well, last week, I guess. They put plates in his ankle and they did all. And many of you guys have had procedures done medically that unless we were living in the United States, you would not be here today. Some aspects of culture, this culture, it's good. Some aspects of it are okay. But there are aspects of it that are anti-Christian. And the teaching of Balaam is accepting those cultural norms as uh, normal for us. The, the, those things that run contrary to, to God's glory. It's just well, part of it. You know, I mean, again, hell's not stupid. They say it loud enough. 
And they say it with enough graphics. And they get celebrities saying it and a couple of football players. And they say it over and over and they start making laws about it. What do you do? You say, well, what else can I do? I guess this is good. I guess this is right. I guess this is the way it is. Rome made laws about it. They were saying it all over the place. And the people said, yeah, I guess this is the way we're supposed to go. Well, let me, let me read you a portion of scripture that I dare say you've never heard read on Sunday morning. In chapter 25 of Numbers, beginning in verse uh, 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man, listen, this is important. Actually, we're going to find out this Israelite man ends up being a key leader in Israel. An Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You see see what's going on? This this Israelite leader, while these guys, Moses, and and the main guys are crying, oh, we've sinned. This guy goes and he gets a Moabite woman and right in front of him ushers her into his tent and he follows so they can be involved. This is quite the issue. Now, again, what's what's going on in in, in Pergamum at this point? And it was going to be a huge issue for the early church. Now, your, your boss goes to the temple of Zeus. And he brings his bowl and the, the priest at Zeus pulls off some hairs of the, the bowl and throws them in the fire. And then the priest takes his cut of the meat and then gives the rest of it to your boss. And your boss can take it home. But most probably what he does is he goes into the temple of Zeus and he has a barbecue. He has a picnic. And guess who he sends an invitation to? You! And now you're going to offend your boss by not going? You kind of need to work. you got kids and all those kinds of things. You're going to offend your boss? Or maybe your extended family does this. Or maybe guys, that, that girl you like, her parents do this. You're going to offend them? That it? You're just going to offend them? And maybe your, your neighbors, maybe you're in a union, and so your, your union does this. We'll learn more about that even next week. And so, so if you don't go, you're out, of the, you're out of a job. You're blackballed. You're blacklisted. Do you not go? You're going to offend the whole city, the whole town? I mean, this, you, you could not um, be a chameleon Christian here. You were following or you were, you were not. And so the Christians are saying, my goodness, Lord, can't we, uh, we're, in, we're in Rome, we're in Rome, do as Romans, can't we just, just embrace this? I mean, you know we really don't believe this anyway, can't we just go and smile and hang out with, with the Zeus worshippers for a while and, 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 and still follow you? Can't we not just do that? They've married portions of the world that were more easy for them to, uh, they were more accommodating to them. And more convenient for them. They were financially uh, well off if they, if they followed these things. And they married them to their Christianity. They said, we, we just, we just got to go this route. This was the, the teaching of Balaam. What's, what's the solution here? Verse 7, still in uh, Numbers 25, it says, When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. Hear that in church on a regular basis, huh? So we're handing out spears on your way out today, and I want you... No, no, no. Um, keep in mind there are laws on the books. 
in their theocracy against this kind of thing. And the priests were the judges and the executioners and the jury. They were everything. It's just kind of amazing that Phineas was the only one that was really willing to do this. But, but this is the part of this text that blows my mind. Verse 10, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Look at this. For he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Doctrinal diversity destroys the honor of God. We don't think about that. Most of the time we're asking, how does this affect me? Well, it destroys the honor of God. I've wondered, not, not that I have to wonder long, I guess I long for this to be so for me, but would he look at me and say, Harris is as zealous as I am for my honor. Wouldn't that be incredible? If he looked at you, would he say, you are as zealous for my honor as I am, and you will not, you will, you will not stand for, for people dishonoring me. Can God count on us to say, I've got these guys, my representatives in the world, and you know what? They care for my honor. Anyone disses me or puts me, they're going to stand up for me. Would we be that? Are we really into the caring more for our own honor? And we'd like to be accepted and honored by the people, so we're going to just zip it and be still and quiet. Again, I'm not talking about being obnoxious. There's a way you do things. But that's uh, Doctrinal diversity destroys God's honor. Doctrinal diversity also, and this is another reason why you can't have it part of, of the church or part of your mindset, is it destroys others. Don't you love, love these verses. We're still in Numbers 25 where he says, um, So that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. God was going to wipe out these two, but also the entire camp. Sometimes we see folk and we're kind of quiet and we know what they're believing is heretical in major ways, but we don't want to rock the boat. We want them to be our friends. We want us all to get together and be happy and and be fun. And so we don't say anything, but we know, we should know in the back of our mind that their aberrant doctrine is going to lead them to the judgment seat one day and a judgment of Christ one day. That is not a loving thing to do, to to allow. You know, as it uh, even this past week, I was able to talk to a guy. Um, it was a good good conversation. Um, but here was our premise. He he had uh, made a confession for Christ at one time, but was living very 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 far very far from him right now. But still camping on this fact that. He made this confession way back when as his ticket in. It's interesting to note that Christian is really not a name that the early church chose for themselves. It's only listed twice in in the New Testament. Once it's pejorative, people are making fun of the followers of Christ with that term because it means little Christ. Um, The term that they liked for themselves was disciple, follower of Christ. Now, here's here's my brain surgeon philosophy here and tell me if i'm wrong here i think though that followers of christ follow christ makes sense right does that mean if you're a follower of christ that means you follow christ and so if you're not following christ i don't know what else you may or may not be but you're not a follower of christ because followers of christ follow christ and so if in fact you think that you can take enough of God to get in heaven one day, because who doesn't want to go there, 
but enough of this world to make things comfortable and okay and convenient. I'm not so sure you've got a doctrine that is really going to get you there. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I would hold otherwise. Let me see what we mentioned this. Uh, verse 12, Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And then in verse uh, 16, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Those who have who have uh, taken the, the teaching of Balaam and, and intermeshed it with God, with Christianity, with the word of God, Jesus is going to fight against them. Now, what is what is the reward for this? Let me just do We'll touch on this and we'll be gone. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. You know, if you're like me, first time you read that, you go, and? I mean, is this, is this it? This is the best you can do, Jesus? You know, stale bread and a rock? You know, is this supposed to really be helpful? I'm supposed to motivate me to, oh, I'm going to do it for the stale bread and a rock. Um, now, his original readers would have understood. We know the manna thing. We can figure that out. Israel is out in the, the desert. They just got out of Egypt. There's no way they can provide nourishment and strength for themselves. There's just no way. They would all die. God miraculously, supernaturally gives them not all the food groups, not, but it, somehow it contains all of the vitamins, minerals, it's supernatural food, and it, it, it gives them what they need. Now, let me give you some dots and we'll connect them in a second for this this other thing this uh this rock thing there's different different perspectives on it um first of all white in revelation you got white robes you got uh white linen you got white stone you got a white horse not all the time but most often white is a picture of purity no sin no sin pure pure the best it can be a new new name okay you've got in Revelation, you got New Jerusalem, you, you got a, a new song, he's going to make all things new. Uh, same sort of thing. It, it's just life outside of the curse. It, it's, it's something that you and I have never experienced. We can only dream of, and our best dreams fall way short. It's the new. This name that's on there, probably the name of Christ and its fullness, uh, written on it, uh, known only to him who receives it. That Again, not cognizant knowledge. I'm looking at the name. <laughs> I know what you don't. It's experiential understanding now, this is this is one more thing today in our culture one of the big things for us is super bowl parties uh, we didn't always do this i have a feeling there'll be a day when we don't do this but right now they're big super bowl comes you invite i don't know your friends or your family or neighbors or somebody there's there's people you invite you don't invite everybody but you invite a handful of people and you have a super bowl party here after the olympic games and this is huge because this isn't terribly far from, from Greece, just over the Aegean Sea. There, there's Greece. It was very, very prominent here. After the games, you had, if you had the means, a massive banquet, a massive party. And you invited. Now, again, you couldn't invite everybody. Not everyone got an invitation. But you, you picked and chose who you would invite to this party. And, of course, you couldn't go home and run off the invites on your HP inkjet. And so often one of the things they did is they had stones. They were obviously plentiful, easy to get. And you would mark on the stones and you'd give them. And if you had one of these with that person's signature or whatever marking they had on it, this was like your ticket in. This was your ticket in. If you didn't have one, you couldn't get in. So what Jesus is saying here is this. As you go through 
the heat that you will get if you decide that doctrinal diversity is not for me. I am rejecting the teaching of Balaam. I'm going to stand for him. You do that, there will be heat. And you're going to think, how can I make it? How can I deal with it? Jesus is saying, manna, I'm giving you strength that you didn't know you had. I'm going to give you. I might not give it to you all at once for all you need, but for that day, for that event, I will give you what you need. And then when this game is over, I'm going to have a party. A party of such purity, of such power. And guess who I'm going to invite? You. I want you there. Now, that would motivate these guys. Yes. Yes, I'm going to be one who overcomes. When I was at, at Moody, and I don't know if this story is true, but one of my professors said this, so I'm just trusting her. She said that when she was in Arizona, uh, she uh, did what you're not supposed to do. She stole a cactus from the desert. You know, leave all those things there. Well, anyway, she took it. She thought it looked cool. It was cute. It wasn't a big one. It was a massive sombrero thing. It was just a little. It's fine. Okay. So she took it home. It's going to be a great conversation piece and all the rest. So she gets the thing home, and it's on her table. And every once in a while, she would notice it would vibrate a little bit. She's like, oh, she wasn't a cactiologist or anything. Maybe this is what cacti do. I don't know. But, but it would vibrate more and more. She said that one day she was watching this thing and it just burst and all these baby scorpions began running everywhere. Now, if she had not been watching this, this could have destroyed her whole family. Uh, this thing that looked so nice. It was a conversation piece. It was fun. It didn't look like it was a bad thing. Let me, let me tell you, if you have saddled up the Trojan horse... If you, if you were riding that, which doesn't look like a bad thing, it looks fun, it looks nice, it looks wonderful, you need to know. Based on God's word, you can always trust Jesus. It will kill you. It will kill you. And so, application, one of two things. Either you, you have bought this, and you are, you are riding along, you have, you have tried to put Christianity and some worldly stuff together, and you've mixed it, you need to get off of that horse right now. Uh, or maybe... You know somebody who is there and you've been tolerating. And you know you probably need to have a conversation with this person. But you've been putting it off because it's going to be awkward. It's going to be hard work. And you don't want to go there. These guys, again, were underneath the, the judgment of Christ because they tolerated these things. Not because they were believing them, because they tolerated. Uh, let's, let's take a moment to pray. And as we do... In your own mind, where you're at, I want to give you the opportunity. If, if you have intermixed things of this culture that run contrary to the honor of God, I don't have to tell you all that they are, you know. If you mix them into your life right now, it is time to put those aside. Repent is what Pergamum was to do. And if, in fact, there's somebody that you know of, they claim the name of Christ... But they are living like a hellion. What Christ would have for you today in kind, in gentleness, but in firmness, have a conversation. Would you commit that to him? Lord, on one level, I'm, I'm grateful that I don't live in Pergamum today where I, if I follow you, that means that I will offend everybody in town. I will offend uh, family and employers and 
end up being prejudiced against or ridiculed or killed. And yet, Lord, it, it seems to me, with that not being the case, it allows us to embrace things we ought not to embrace and perhaps not take seriously our walk with you. I pray, Lord, for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for the church of FAC. God, may we not be Pergamum. May we not be doctrinal lax. May we, we, we not... May we love everybody, but recognize that your word has spoken. Your word is the final authority, and we don't want to diminish that or change that or cover that up, but be advocates of that. As we walk this line, what a tough tension to walk in this world. God, would you give us the wisdom and grace even this day in the name of Jesus? Amen.